This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Equity Lines. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is easy. Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates with Bryce and Ren, where we teach you to invest for the best dividend. We break down the world of investing from beginning to dividend so that you can hopefully make some returns. My name's Bryce, as I said, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How are you going, bro? I'm good, Bryce. Was that uh, uh, you, your own work or was that from a listener? Look, that wasn't my own work. Um, we did have a listener, Lukey who shouted us out on Twitter and, and gave us a couple of intro ideas. So I thought I'd uh, throw that one into the mix. What do you think? Uh, I love it. I love the fact that people are suggesting things. Yes. Um, I think you're going to have to build it into the rest of your intro a little bit better, though. I agree. It was a bit messy, that one. But um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> look, thanks, Lukey, for the shout out. Uh, there is a second one there as well. So next episode, we'll throw in the second one that he recommended and, and we can oh, and make a judgment. Unless up. Unless someone comes in with a better one. Oh, by all means. We're we're open to suggestions. (laughs) (laughs) As you can tell. (laughs) Anyway, so Ren, today we continue with our expert investor series. Over the last couple of weeks, we've been fortunate enough to sit down with some really amazing people and and have a chat across a really broad range of subjects. And uh, that continues today where we sat down with uh, Adam Verway, who is the managing director and founder of of Future Super? And this was a super conversation, Ren. It was, yeah. I actually I loved it, and I, I enjoyed your pun there. Don't think that didn't go unnoticed. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think, I mean, ethical investing is something that we both are really interested in as a concept, and then you know different ways to access it. And ethical funds have done extremely well of late. And to speak to Adam and to hear how they've put that into effect in a super fund. Um, and we get, a little bit philosoph- we get a little bit philosophical about uh, what is ethical. Um, I don't know. I thought this was a really good conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Now, we did a ethical investing episode about a month ago or so, but it was a really good opportunity for us to sit down with someone who had a, a quite a deep understanding and, and some really good knowledge in this uh, in this topic and hopefully it, it now covers all the questions that our uh, listeners have been asking over the last sort of 12 months or so in this area because it's certainly one that is becoming very 
popular. And um, yeah, I think, as you said, Ren, excellent conversation. So um, I hope everyone enjoys it just as much as, as we did. Tonight, we are very lucky to be joined by Adam Verwey, Managing Director and Founder of Future Super. Over the last few months, we've had a number of listeners write in uh, wanting us to do a bit of a deep dive into ethical investing and all the different sort of ways that you can access it as it's certainly a, an area of investing that is in growing in popularity for, for good reason. So, Adam, thank you for joining us on tonight's show. Great. Thanks for having me and great to speak to two fans of ethical investment. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I think usually we start the show, Adam, with a bit of a game around um, overrated and, and underrated and we throw some different asset classes and, and different investing themes to our guests to see, to see where they sit. But we thought tonight we would uh, change that to ethical versus unethical to get a sense of how Future Super sort of thinks about these types of companies. So um, we'll start with, I guess, a very easy one for you and uh, and then we'll move from there. So ethical versus unethical, Philip Morris. Philip Morris, easy one, uh, unethical. Uh, so obviously they, they sell tobacco products, which are addictive products that kill people. So that one's a fairly easy one for us to, to screen out. But it's also a fairly easy one for uh, lots of not just ethical funds, but lots of fund managers to screen out, including you know Australia's Future Fund, New Zealand's Super Fund, Norway's Pension Fund. You know all of these uh, big government pension funds already exclude investment in tobacco, so it's a pretty easy out for not just ethical investors, but um, but sort of mainstream investors as well. So Adam, maybe one on the other end of the spectrum: ethical or unethical Tesla. Tesla. Yeah, so Tesla is one that Future Super invests in, uh, and it's one that our members just love. So obviously they make uh, electric vehicles and also uh, so battery systems, which are you know important part of our sort of clean energy transition. It's a bit of an interesting one because I think Elon Musk can be a little bit tough to like at times, but I think our members are pretty good at sort of separating out Elon Musk from <laughs> Tesla, the company, and they love Tesla. <laughs> ethical or unethical, BHP? BHP, uh, both Future Super and I put this one fairly in the unethical column. And this one's a pretty personal one uh, for me. So uh, BHP is responsible for, for lead poisoning for children in the town that I grew up in. It was actually my inspiration for getting right. into ethical in, wow. in the first place. But even if we ignore sort of my own personal experience with them, like there's some super big reasons why BHP is firmly un- in the unethical category for Future Super. You know, for instance, even after reducing some of its coal holdings recently, it's still one of the world's largest fossil fuel companies. Uh, and just a few hours ago today, the CEO of BHP warned that the world's use of fossil fuels creates an existential risk to the planet. So this is even the CEO of BHP sort of telling everyone that his own company's activities will potentially sort of kill us all. And sort wow. of not to mention that the BHP's activities have literally sort of killed people already. Like it's only a few years since the company wiped out three villages in Brazil, killed 19 people in the process and caused 600 kilometres of waterway pollution and all happened after... BHP executives were warned about the high likelihood of a tragedy uh, in that area of Brazil. So, so even if I sort of take my own personal lens off this one, it's it's a pretty easy one for Future Super to put in the unethical category. Yeah, very squarely in the unethical category there. Uh, ethical or unethical Woolworths? Woolworths, nice. And uh, and I'm aware that Bryce. <laughs> 
Uh, <laughs> don't let yeah, that watch what you say though. here, Adam. <laughs> um, so uh, I'd put it in unethical right now, at, largely because, Ooh. I mean, it's still Australia's largest poker machine operator. Uh, so I think um, that's the reason why most ethical investors sort of screen out Woolworths. But they do plan to divest their pokies business and I think their alcohol business as well, which accounts for about 15% of their revenue. So I think if once those parts of the business are out, and I'm sure Bryce knows better than me, but uh, I think they've committed to getting those parts of the business out by 2020, I think the thing we'd want to look at is around the, the management of a supply chain, in particularly in regards to sort of some of the uh, new modern slavery acts as well. In the unethical category now, but I think um, this will be an interesting one once those uh, poker machines are out of that business. I think there might be a number of ethical funds who might put Woolies back in. This is an interesting one for me, ethical or unethical Facebook? Facebook. So we, FutureSuper did invest in Facebook up until March last year, and we divested it after the uh, Canberra Analytica scandal, pretty much because it just seemed to be this pattern of behaviour where Facebook really pushed the limits of what's susceptible, and then they apologise when things go wrong or when they get caught out. But not many other ethical fund managers sort of followed us in doing this in Australia, but in New Zealand, uh, particularly after the Christchurch shooting that was broadcast on Facebook, there's a lot more talk amongst investors there and not just traditional ethical investors, but, uh, you know, all uh, ethical investors in New Zealand about whether Facebook is a responsible investment to hold or not. So we did invest in it, but we put it in the in the unethical category now. Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting one. And I imagine this ethical or unethical dilemma comes up with a lot of companies. One that may be a little bit more clear cut, but maybe not. Ethical or unethical McDonald's? Uh, I mean, their, their primary business is making the world fat and unhealthy. So, they, <laughs> <laughs> so we put that one in the ethical category. Yeah, yeah. And then to close it out, Adam, we've got ethical or unethical Apple. Uh, yeah, this is, a, this is a goodie. So we put it in the ethical category and we invest in Apple. Uh, and it's probably also the listed company that we get the most questions about from our members. So, like, of course, Apple's had a heap of questions over the years about its supply chain, and it's true that their supply chain management was terrible for many years. But I think as a result of having so much scrutiny over their supply chain, they've responded really well, and they're probably a leader amongst tech companies in terms of what their supply chain management looks like now. And then on the environmental side, they're getting close to 100% renewable powered, not just in their own operations, but also across their supplies as well. And they're closing the loop on materials in their products for recycling and using recycled materials. So, you know, um, you know, I guess there's also criticisms about sort of inbuilt redundancies in Apple products, but they are mostly recycled <laughs> once they become redundant and get sold on as new Apple phones after that. So we invest in those, and that's one of our larger international equity holdings. It's a really fascinating question, I guess, and I reckon we could probably do a full interview just asking you company names and you telling us whether they're ethical or unethical. <laughs> there is, there is but uh, <laughs> limit to how many I personally. We, we uh, won't. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we'll, um, we'll move on. And I was just going to say that this makes so it seem like, um, like I'm knocking out most companies for being unethical, but what's really the case is that about two-thirds of the companies in the ASX 300, for instance, pass future super screens, not necessarily because they're doing something br- uh, brilliant, but, you know, there's a lot of ethically neutral companies out there who are just kind of doing ethically neutral things in an ethically neutral fashion that still pass our screens. And there's plenty of companies who are doing positive things as well. So that list had a lot of ones that we put in the unethical category, but uh, but sort of two thirds of companies would pass our screens. Yeah. Yeah. I think we gave you a skewed sample size there. <laughs> we, uh, we wanted to start yeah, with some controversy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
So, Adam, what the way we like to start these interviews is is to go back to the start of your investing journey. So, to begin today, can you tell us the story of your first investment? Sure. So, my first investment, and uh, and I think maybe Bryce might like this uh, example as well. So, my first investment was in REST superannuation. So, when I got my first job in uh, Broken Hill Woolworths as a fifteen-year-old. Um, <laughs> and you said they were unethical. and I needed a job. Uh, yeah. so, uh, so the HR person was getting me to sign a contract and do all the other sort of onboarding things you do when you start a new job. And she put the paperwork for rest super in front of me. And I just sort of said, oh, look, I don't know much about this, but my dad does. So, you know, I might go home and just ask my dad before <laughs> signing up to a super fund. And an HR person left the room came back with this big burly bloke who stood over me, put his finger on the rest application forms and said, you know, we all join this super fund. Uh, so I filled out the application form and that was it, my first investment. I'm sure things are different now at Woolies. <laughs> <laughs> so you've had a pretty interesting back uh, story to get to where you are. Let's talk about, I guess, that journey to future super. From what we've read, you've you've spent a a fair bit of time at Australian Ethical Investments, but also had a bit of exposure to politics as well. So can you give us a bit of insight into, I guess, your journey into Australian Ethical Investments and then maybe bring us to the start of the future super journey? Sure. Uh, And maybe I'll just start by going like a step back further and just sort of expand on what I said earlier about BHP. So I I went to uh, high school in uh, Broken Hill, and uh, I don't know if either of you have been there, but it's sort of a, a, a particularly interesting place in part because the, the mine is smack bang in the middle of town. You know, right on the main street, there's this huge pile of slag that's come out, in, that's come out of the, the mines, like a, like a massive hill. And it's all full of lead tailings. And that lead tailings, this sort of big hill of lead tailings, sort of blows across town with the wind. And it's quite poisonous, particularly bad for children who grew up in Broken Hill, they have very uh, high levels of lead. Uh, so it's, it's a pretty awful place to, to sort of live if, when you're a child and, you know, sort of limits your abilities to be successful later in life. So I guess I grew up in this environment and he's also grew up in this environment in Broken Hill where people sort of feel like Broken Hill was a big contributor to sort of the commonwealth of Australia and that everybody was sort of the beneficiary of sort of the things that were maybe a little bit shit in Broken Hill. And I guess I had this moment towards the end of my time in high school there where I realised that the BH and BHP stood for Broken Hill and sort of realised that, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and maybe I should have worked it out a bit sooner. But you sort of realise actually, it, you know, uh, the suffering that was in this town wasn't for the good of everybody. It was for the good of a few rich dudes who, uh, who owned and were executives at BHP. And so I sort of had this really sort of angry feeling about BHP and didn't know what to do with it and ultimately ended up uh, leaving Broken Hill and going to university in Canberra where I got involved in student activism. And I guess the first time I really thought about investing was when I had a look at what uh, my student union was investing in and we made a decision in that student union to start investing the money ethically. And it sort of prompted me to think, well, hang on, where's my superannuation invested? So I sort of had this other light bulb moment that my superannuation was invested in stuff and I wanted to check out where it was. And when I looked it up, the biggest holding in my REST Super account was BHP. So now that I just learned about ethical investment, I thought, well, here's my opportunity to move my own super uh, and get it out of being invested in BHP and being invested in, in other things instead. And the super fund I chose was Australian Ethical Investment, 
who just happened to have their office across the road from the university I went to. So I, uh, <laughs> I was a, a bit of a fan of ethical investing as a result of feeling really good about getting uh, rid of my investment in BHP and applied for a job and went directly from university into working at Australian Ethical Investment uh, sort of across the road. And uh, so sort of my first job there, you know, Australian Ethical was pretty small at the time. It was probably managing about 300 to $400 million dollars. And so it was one of those places where it was still small enough where your job was sort of spread out across lots of different things. So my first role there was working directly for two of the founding directors who were on the board and the investment and risk committees and also working a day a week in marketing and a day a week in the funds administration team. And it was sort of this big crash course in learning all the different functions in an investment company. So it didn't feel great to have so many masters at the time, but in hindsight, it really set me up for, for learning a lot about the investment management industry. Uh, and I guess eventually from there, I just moved full-time into marketing and then into sales and product development, which is sort of a great way to learn about how portfolio managers approach portfolio construction and strategy, but also to meet heaps of institutions and also thousands of sort of individual ethical investors and learn about what their expectations were from ethical investment funds. And I guess ultimately what I learned, which led me to being uh, to founding Future Super, was that there was this growing gap between what ethical fund managers were offering and what retail ethical investors were expecting. And the most glaring of these was uh, around investment in fossil fuels. So around the year sort of 2012, 2013, 2014, there was this huge movement of climate-concerned Australians who wanted to move their money out of fossil fuels, now switching their banks to fossil-free banks, They're switching their energy to renewable energy suppliers. But there wasn't a, a super fund in Australia that was excluding fossil fuels from their portfolios. So sort of this thing I learned that sort of led me to, uh, to sort of thinking that, you know, there was an opportunity for, for a super fund that was a bit more genuine about how it, uh, how it approached issues of climate change and inequality uh, in a proper way. And at the same time, I, um, you know, around 2013, I was very concerned about climate change. I was also very concerned about a potential Tony Abbott prime ministership. Uh, and so I was one of those Greens members who puts their hand up to be one of those also rands, <laughs> knowing that they probably won't get elected, <laughs> but by running helps, you know, uh, a Senate candidate have a chance at uh, getting elected. And that Senate candidate in the ACT that year was uh, a guy called Simon Shake, who just finished up as being National Director of GetUp. So, you know, a bit of a, a celebrity candidate in the ACT. And I guess over the course of a year um, campaigning with Simon, just saw how amazing he was at building community, you know, sort of uh, the Greens there, you know, tended to have about, you know, 12 active volunteers. And by the end of that uh, election campaign, Simon had uh, motivated uh, over a thousand people to volunteer on his campaign. Uh, just a really uh, amazing example of community building. And I guess after the election, when we were sort of thinking, well, what's, you know, if we're concerned about climate change, what's the next best thing we could do? It seemed like a great opportunity to use, you know, Simon's background in, in building community and making big progressive changes and combining that with my background in ethical superannuation and see if we could make this one big switch around super, you know, try and move some of that $2.7 trillion that's invested in Australian super funds away from sort of funding the climate change problems and into funding climate change solutions. So that was sort of the... Uh, that was sort of the, the spark for, for founding Future Super. So, Adam, it's a fascinating story, and I think there's a number of elements there that we'll want to come back and touch on. But if we can continue with the story for now. So uh, yourself and Simon founded Future Super in 2014. What was the experience of starting your own super fund like? It's obviously a highly competitive industry with so much money on the line, and extremely personal given it's people's retirement savings. So 
maybe if you pick up the story from after the campaign and founding the uh, founding Future Super, what what was it? Um, yeah, where did where did the journey go from there? Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Yeah, it, it was a, it was an interesting one. So even though I'd worked in superannuation for for sort of almost ten years by this point, like there there was no sort of normal way that you might go about setting up a super fund. People hadn't set up new super funds for quite a long time prior to that. But I had met one person who'd set up a super fund in the last few years at this point, who um who who ran a small super fund called Cruelty Free Super, which was a vegan super fund. So we sort of reached out to this guy and said, how did you get up and running? And he told us about this uh, sort of small family investment business out in Potts Point in Sydney that had a master trust that could help new super funds come to market. So we sort of reached out and found this business and uh, sort of got plugged into their master fund, uh, which we've since left. We got uh, much too big for that master fund and moved Future Super onto its own uh, fund afterwards. But it gave us a great avenue to come to market and actually gave sort of created this template for other new super funds to come to market as well. There's been a lot of new super funds, you know, trying to disrupt around ethics or technology, uh, things like that over the last few years. And they've also followed this same template that we created for getting to market quite quickly, uh, which, which was great. Um, but it was, you're right. Like it's a really uh, personal thing, superannuation and people are trusting you with a lot of money. Uh, and it's a lot to trust a new super fund with your life savings or your new retirement savings. And I guess the people who joined us initially, we, we had 2,000 members within the first few months, really. I mean, and these people trusted Simon and I, uh, first and foremost, particularly around the ethics. And it's great that subsequently we've been able to sort of repay that trust with sort of above average returns and a great customer experience as well. But those first few members as well were like just super highly engaged in what we were doing. Like these people were just waiting for a super fund like ours to come to market and just loved everything we did. There was a few things we did early on where, for instance, you know, and we were a typical startup. We didn't have that much money uh, to spend. So on our advertising, we mostly did digital advertising. We were really keen to run an ad in one of the big Saturday papers. So, you know, we sort of put our feelers out and said, you know, if anybody has a distress rate going, you know, we'll pick it up, we'll buy it. And so a, a, a newspaper called The Saturday Paper contacted us and said, you, you know, if you can get us some artwork, you know, in 24 hours, there's a distress rate going. So if it wouldn't it be great if we put an ad in the Saturday paper that was a message from our 2,000 members at the time saying, you know, we're out. You know, we, you know, dislike fossil fuels so much that we went to the effort of switching our super funds and this is our, you know, message that we're sending to our community, that we've, what we've done. And we thought, well, we've only got a few hours to get the artwork in, so we're going to send an email to our members 
and see if maybe a couple of hundred of them want their name attached to this open letter. And within a few hours, 1,700 of our members had written back saying they wanted their name written on this ad. And we could, like, it was a bit of a struggle to fit them all. <laughs> we reduced it to sort of size six fonts and it was first initial, last name only and that sort of, that sort of thing. But it was sort of amazing like to have 2,000 members and have 1,700 of them want to participate in an action like this within a few hours. Like there's no other super mm. fund in the country who could possibly say they had that level of engagement with their members. And there was also other things we did as well. Like the first um, time we invested directly into owning a solar farm. So we bought some uh, into a fund that owned some solar uh, farms in the ACT and we put out an invite to our members to turn up and just visit the solar farms. They were pretty small solar farms, sort of three to five megawatt type solar farms. But our members came out and drove, like hundreds of them came out and just sat in these solar farms like all day. Like not much, like not much happens on a solar farm. Like the it's sort of there's some solar panels on a you know just sitting in a <laughs> sitting in a straight line and they slowly move. But our members loved it. Like they loved knowing that they owned uh, this solar farm. So you know that just sort of showed how highly engaged uh, sort of those early members were. And uh, I think you know mostly they were trusting us with the ethics and maybe the, the financial return was secondary for them. But but it's been great that our financial returns have actually been really great as well, and they've been able to get repaid for the faith that they um, that they put in us. So Adam. Uh- Obviously, kicked off uh, 2014. What are we now? Five or five years or so from from then. We know that the, the industry itself, ethical investing, has been has been performing reasonably well. But um, really interested to know how the growth of of your fund has been from also, not only an assets under management point of view, but also growth of the community. But and and more importantly, the performance of the fund itself. So, can you just talk us through how overall the growth has been? Yeah, the growth has been great. We've been really well supported. We've got 15,000 members have joined the Future Super Fund already, which has been a really great take-up rate. Super highly engaged members. Our NPS, which our net promoter score, is like positive 70, which means that uh, you know our members really, really love us. And the average NPS score for a Super Fund is usually negative 10 or something like that. So usually people really hate their Super Fund. Our members really love us, which is um, which is great. And we have about $500 million in funds under management for Future Super now as well. So it's been great to be able to have uh, money that we can really uh, invest in a, in a great ethical and impactful way. So we have uh, three investment options, which are all variations of a balanced fund strategy. And they all delivered about 9% in the last financial year, which puts them in the top quartile of all super fund balanced options last year. Our original investment option, which we call balanced impact, that's almost five years old now and has delivered about 7% per annum after fees, which is an above average return for that time. So it's been really great that our members who came on early uh, really supported us from an ethical perspective have been rewarded with that great return over the last five years. But also in general, like people should just expect that ethically screened funds can produce returns which are just as good as similar non-ethical funds. The Responsible Investment Association puts out a benchmarking report each year that shows that ethical funds tend to perform about the same or better than mainstream funds uh, overall time periods. So I think ethical investors know this. I think they know that they're going to get returns that are just the same or better than what their mates in, in non-ethical funds are investing in. So, Adam, I'm really keen to get into the meat of ethical investing now and really um, understand you know, why you think or why you've sort of dedicated your career to it and then um, how you think of it as an investment option. So maybe maybe to start with, can you can you give us the case for ethical investing? Yeah. So, like, I think I could make the case in either a positive or a negative 
light, but I guess for <laughs> the overall cases uh, about the same, and particularly when we look at it in a superannuation context, which is it's $2.7 trillion that we all collectively have in our super funds makes a huge difference to the type of world, the type of community that we want to live in. And even at an individual level, your superannuation is probably your biggest or your second biggest asset. So how it's invested has a big impact on your life, both financially and non-financially as well. So if it's invested in things that, you know, make the climate dangerous, that make people unhealthy in your community, that make your societies less safe, like why would you want to invest in that future? On the flip side, if you've got an opportunity to invest that money into making our environment cleaner, into making our community safer, into having our societies be more highly educated, more healthy, why wouldn't you want to invest in that? Particularly when we know that it can generate just as good a return from investing in the positive activities and the companies doing positive things as it is when you're uh, investing in things that are having a destructive impact. So I think that's the main reason. Uh, I think there's also this other reason at the moment, which is we can have great collective action around taking action with our money. When we all work together, either around divestment or reinvestment campaigns, you know, the type of change we can make is huge. So out of that $2.7 trillion in superannuation, it would take 7.7% of that to completely power a clean energy grid in Australia by 2030. No other investment, just for 7.7% of super. When you think about it in that context, it's like, you know, what an amazing asset we'll have to create a better world. So, uh, so why wouldn't you want to consider doing that? That's, that's a pretty crazy statistic when you think about it. There's a lot of money in super, one, but two, it can make a big difference. So I guess if we if we take it from the, the general, the case for ethical investing to a bit more specific around what future super does, can you maybe talk about how you see future super's role in that, uh, where your focus as a super fund has been, and then maybe that leads on to some of your larger holdings and investment objectives as Future Super? Yeah, so, so obviously our, um, I think our members are motivated around this uh, collective action and they participate with us in campaigns we make, which, which has been really great. You know, we're a sort of super fund that, you know, when you join it, you'll get a phone call sort of helping you roll over and do those other things, but also a phone call that sort of says, you know, how can we as big shareholders in, in listed companies make the sort of changes that you want to see? which I think is a really engaging thing for members uh, to get that phone call about. But obviously, we've also got a fiduciary duty to create uh, great returns for our members. So, you know, uh, we don't take big risks with the way we invest money. Uh, we've, we've got uh, three sort of balanced fund portfolios. So they're investing in sort of higher risk growth stuff like listed equities, but we're also investing in defensive assets uh, and fixed interest assets as well. And so you should expect if you're an investor in Future Super that you're going to get a return that looks a lot like the balance fund returns of other super funds are producing. You're just getting that return from being invested in companies that are doing uh, better things. In terms of what those companies and holdings look like, sort of on the listed company side within our uh, international equities holding, like our, our largest holdings are in companies like MasterCard, Visa, Apple, Home Depot, Roche, uh, Netflix, you know, companies I think that most people would know and be aware of. Within the Australian equity space, Companies like Brambles, Telstra, ResMed, IAG, Dexas, Cochlear. Uh, once again, you know, those are those are names that I think many Australians would be uh, quite familiar with. And I think our approach to investing in liquid assets like uh, listed listed equities is to take a, a rules-based approach to how we invest. 
So if we have this investment philosophy that companies that are more ethical and have superior environmental, social and governance credentials do better over the long term, then we want to be invested as broadly as possible across uh, that universe of stocks, which is a bit different to how ethical funds have traditionally managed equities investments. A lot of older ethical investment companies in Australia and, and overseas as well tend to be stock pickers. Where our view is that if you had this view that this universe of stocks is going to outperform anyway, to try and stock pick within that universe feels like you're adding the extra risk that you're not going to get that return premium on those investments. So we sort of take a rules-based or index approach to listed equities. And then we're looking to uh, sort of have uh, impact with uh, our uh, directly held assets as well. So particularly within our defensive portfolio, but also our alternatives. So investing members' money into directly owning solar and wind farms, We've got great opportunities in providing debt to renewable energy uh, projects as well. We just started in the last couple of weeks, uh, we sort of dipped our toes into doing peer-to-peer lending through Ratesetter, which uh, people are using to put solar on their own roofs. Uh, We're investing in green bonds, also social impact bonds, which help address things like homelessness. So uh, social impact bond may uh, pay you a return based on how well a program does in reducing homelessness, which is a great sort of thing for our, our members to be investing in as well. So that's how we sort of view it, which is take a rules-based approach to uh, to liquid assets, try and get the premium that we think that ESG superior companies produce. And then with our illiquid part of the portfolio, try and have as big an impact as we can, both around climate change, but also around inequality as well. Interesting. Out of interest, Adam, did you invest in the Woolies Green Bond? No, we didn't. So it was an interesting green bond, but, uh, but obviously sort of the issuer is one that we would screen out at the moment. Um, mm, but if it hadn't mm. been issued once, would we'll divest of those pokies holdings in particular? It would have been an interesting one for us to look at. Yeah, interesting. So speaking of screens, positive screening and negative screening is um, something that applies to the ethical space. And we did discuss it a bit in our previous episode, but can you uh, refresh us on the difference between a, a positive screen and a negative screen and, and explain if, if there's one or the other that you prefer to use? So this is sort of the, the, the most basic way of sort of doing ethical investment and this is what fund managers do, but it's also what if you go see a financial planner and you tell them that you're interested in ethical investment, it's an exercise I'll make you do as well, which is, you know, whatever sort of investments you want to avoid and you want negatively screened out and whatever sort of investments that you want to support that have positively screened in. And maybe uh, depending on the ethical fund manager, they might put certain threshold limits around, you know, if the company has, you know, up to 5% exposure to that negative activity, then maybe it'll still be okay uh, or not. So with a future super lens on, we think the negative screen is really important, which is we think ethical investors just want absolutely zero exposure to things like fossil fuels, live animal export, uh, asylum seeker detention centre, those sorts of things. So important not to just to have the negative screens, but to be really genuine about them and have 0% thresholds on the things that really matter. And I guess our approach is to sort of, maybe have a bit more of a, you know, once a negative screen is applied, have a bit more of a best of sector approach to, to listed assets. So, for instance, companies who are superior carbon performers would then uh, be preferred in or companies that have superior revenue streams from uh, good activities would get screened in. And then we're looking to have that sort of deep impact on those illiquid assets, as I mentioned uh, before. So really get that positive lens through the illiquid space rather than through the listed company space. It's also a bit tricky in the uh, Australian context as well because the ASX is not very um, diversified. So, you know, some negative and positive screens can do a lot of work 
uh, and some don't do any. Uh, you know, if you're getting rid of controversial weapons on the ASX, you're, you're probably not really removing much. So, Adam, I want to get a bit philosophical now because it's something that I often wonder. But we, we often we talk about ethical funds, and there's there's always some obvious examples we go to. And I think you you listed a few in your last answer: asylum seeker detention, fossil fuels, live animal exports. But there's also a lot on the margin, you know, things like alcohol and, you know, McDonald's fast food, things like that, which are a little bit more grey and then there's probably even greyer still, things like Facebook and their data um, integrity and privacy. So I guess in a really broad sense, how do you decide what is ethical? Uh, yeah, it's a it's a really interesting question, and uh, I think it really depends on like how somebody's come to the to the space. Like, you know, you you might be sort of a traditional sort of progressive green voting, climate change concerned person, and that's how you come to ethical investment. Or you might be, for instance, a religious person, and that's the reason you sort of come in. And those two different groups might expect sort of a, a different approach. You know, if you come from it from a religious perspective, you probably expect first and foremost, you know, to be screened out entirely from sin stocks, and that's your first uh, approach to it. But the, the couple of issues you raise there are interesting ones to deal with. So uh, alcohol is one where we give ourselves a little bit of tolerance in future super. So we don't have a 0% threshold on alcohol. We allow up to 20%. Uh, revenue. It doesn't allow, um, we don't have any alcohol producers in our portfolio at the moment, but it does put up a possibility that somebody might have that as part of their uh, business line. The junk foods one is particularly interesting. I think Future Super is one of the few super funds that has a junk food screen and it's a really hard one. It's a really hard one to do. So uh, the way our team does ethical screening is usually we go into uh, annual reports and we look to see whether revenue was earned from certain activities. But if you're looking at a food company's annual report, it doesn't say this is how much we earn from junk food. So you've got to sort of make a, a bit of a judgment about whether the different food items they have a uh, junk food or not. And it sort of raises interesting questions about whether, you know, some of the breakfast cereals that are offered are junk food, whether it's Starbucks, you know, Starbucks is an interesting one. You know, they sell coffee. Coffee is not normally considered a junk food, but they sell a lot of super sugary syrupy coffees. And it's not like those things are broken down in the annual report. So it's an interesting one to approach. But I think equally, I think if people are concerned about junk foods, they don't want to be in the really obvious ones uh, like McDonald's and stuff like that as well. Um, so, so at least it's getting rid of rid of those things. But what I would also say is there's a few of those issues which are on the margins, but generally if you identify yourself as an ethical investor, there's a lot of consistency between what you expect. You know, those issues you mentioned before, fossil fuels, live animal export, and just generally animal cruelty issues as well gambling, tobacco, armaments, you know, everyone who identifies as an ethical investor wants to get rid of those things. It might be that one of those things is their sort of primary ethical issue, but they still don't want any exposure to any of them. So I think there's a lot more overlap between what ethical investors want uh, than there is differences. And equally, if a fund is screening out something that you don't particularly care about or bothered about, like if you don't mind if your super fund is investing in alcohol or not, but it, you know, decides to have a screen, you're probably not going to care too much either, right? Like it's probably not going to make you look somewhere else because you want exposure to alcohol. Yeah, so I just think there's a lot more alignment than there is disagreement if you, if you identify as an ethical investor. Yeah, it, it makes sense. And, I mean, look, if you're desperate to hold alcohol stocks, maybe you can uh, buy some in your in your personal brokerage account. <laughs> <laughs> you can have your, your student trading account on the side. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess the, the other part of that question that really fascinates me is, 
we're obviously talking from an Australian context and we have a certain, you know, set of ethics that we apply. When you look at overseas companies and you look at the sort of corporate cultures of overseas companies, are you still just applying the the framework, you know, the Australian ethical framework for want of a better term? Or are you making accommodations at all for different cultures and uh, countries and anything like that? Yeah, so so we are, you know, uh, using the Australian ethical framework in a global sense because that's where our investors are from, and that's. Uh, but it does raise some interesting issues. So, uh, so one of these we uh, sort of had play out over the last year, which was we made uh, a decision that we no longer wanted to invest in listed companies that had all male boards. And it's one of those issues where there's a strong ethical argument for gender diversity on boards and the benefits that brings from an ethical perspective, but a really strong financial argument as well. Like there's been research for, for years and years and years showing that gender diverse boards produce better financial outcomes for investors. So it's this sort of great issue where a sort of there's this overlap between it being a clear uh, ethical positive, but also being a, uh, backed up by a clear financial positive as well. So in an Australian context, we identified the handful of Australian companies we were invested in that had all-male boards still and said, you know, we think you uh, should have a plan uh, to introduce gender diversity to your board. And if you don't achieve that by this date, then we'll divest of our holding. You know, the ASX, the big side of the ASX is pretty good on gender diversity nowadays. And the handful of companies we had left, two of them appointed a, a female director to their boards, two of them didn't. So we sold out of those two that didn't. So it was one of those times where we felt like we got a good outcome for our engagement with two of those companies. And equally, those other two companies showed that they weren't interested in the benefits of adding diversity to the board and were happy not to be a shareholder in those companies anymore. We then went to apply this to a global context. And what we found was that there was eight companies in our global portfolio that had all-male boards and they were all based in Japan. Uh, and just completely different governance in Japan where issues of any type of diversity on boards and qualification for board positions just is completely different. And so we sort of had this choice where the screen is really important, but equally like it doesn't feel great to knock a lot of uh, companies from one country out of your uh, portfolio. But we decided it was very important to our investors to be consistent with this. You know, issues of gender equality are really important to our members and it was important for us to follow through. So the approach we took was we contacted all of those Japanese companies. We wrote to them, had our, our letters translated into, into Japanese as well, just talking through uh, the benefits of gender diversity on their boards, why it was important uh, to us as a shareholder in their business, and gave them a long lead time, uh, almost a year, to try and uh, – appoint at least one female director to their board. These are companies in Japan that generally have like huge boards, 25, 30 people, but no females. And they all tend to be sort of males aged, you know, 70 plus. And ultimately none of them uh, added a female directors to their boards. So uh, so just a few months ago, we decided that we would sell out of those companies. Um, so we're a little less exposed to Japan now. But it was a great to be able to make that announcement that we were the first super fund to completely exclude investments uh, in listed companies with all male boards. And we've seen uh, other uh, institutional investors follow us down that path as well. So it's nice that, you know, we were able to make a bit of a difference with some companies, but also uh, maybe have an influence on some other funds as well and into how they approach issues of gender equality and board diversity. That, that's uh, that's really interesting. And it I guess it begs the question with the impact of, you know, well, 
with ethical investing on the rise and assets under management on the rise, is the impact of ethical investors having a greater influence on company decisions? Are you seeing any other sort of notable case studies in Australia or globally where companies are specifically making decisions knowing that it may be attractive for ethical investors? Yeah, I think um, increasingly companies want to be sort of imprimatur of being put into sustainability indexes and ethical indexes. Mm. So I think the fact that there's an, uh, an increasing number of ethical indices and, and that have been turned into ETFs in particular out there, I think companies just want to be in them. So I think if they're on the borderline, they might make decisions that help get them across the line. And sort of what we've seen, so Future Super has a has a partnership with uh, BetaShares, which is an ETF provider, around their ethical products. And what we've seen is that companies have been really quick to engage with us when we've uh, reached out to them and said, you know, this is um, what it would take for you to be included into the, the ethical index that underlies those ETFs. Uh, so that's been really good. And I think we've also seen in Australia an increasing amount of shareholder resolutions at AGMs that are getting quite well supported by institutional investors. I think engagement and shareholder resolutions is kind of sort of a safe way of uh, being ethically engaged. Uh, I think a lot of fund managers are more comfortable with that than from divesting um, from companies. And we saw some of the votes at AGMs last year that ethical resolutions were, were getting. We're getting up towards the 40% mark, which is incredibly high. So I think companies are going to increasingly feel the pressure that once investors and particularly ethical investors start engaging with them in the lead up to AGMs, they might want to start taking a bit more notice and, and trying to um, take action before those things get voted on. So when we talk about the impact of ethical investors, we've, we've touched on a number of sort of big topics today, fossil fuels, female representation on boards, live animal exports, um, asylum seeker detention. When you look to the future and when you think about the future of ethical investing in Australia and globally, are there any sort of big issues that you see uh, slowly creeping to the surface and that you think will become really prominent in the sort of in the next decade or so in the ethical investing space? Yeah, I, I guess one that I see a lot more nowadays is just issues of animal uh, welfare. So I think we've particularly seen the rise of the vegan and vegetarian consumer. But it's an area where, you know, those people are concerned about that, not just from an aspect of diet, but wanting that uh, part of their lifestyle reflected in how they invest their money uh, as well. And I don't think fund managers are doing a very, very good job at understanding, you know, the impacts of their investments uh, on animals. So I think that'll be one that will um, increasingly get a lot more attention. There's, uh, I think, uh, just earlier I mentioned that fund Cruelty Free Super, which is now part of the Future Super Group. So that's one of the um, – <laughs> we acquired that fund uh, over the last few years. And we've seen huge growth in that fund. Uh, you know, it was a tiny sort of $10, $15 million portfolio just a couple of years ago, and now it's about $80 million. So we're seeing a lot of flows come into that because, you know, I think the rise of that sort of consumer uh, is just taking off. But I also think uh, what we'll also see over the next few years is just that – companies will just have to act more ethically. And we've seen how on the ASX, uh, what the ASX looks like has changed a lot as well to one that suits ethical investors. So when I started at Australian Ethical about sort of 15 years ago or so, much less than half of what was listed in the sort of ASX 200, ASX 300 would have passed an ethical screen. And we're now at the point now where 
you know, two-thirds or more of the ASX 200, ASX 300 would pass an ethical screen. We're just like our, our share market indices are changing. They reflect more what an ethical consumer is looking for. So maybe the difference between ethical and non-ethical funds uh, might narrow uh, as a result of that. So when I when I think of ethical investing, what, one of the things it seems to me is that it's it's the ultimate it's the ultimate sort of free market argument. It's it's almost like you know if enough people care about it and there's enough money on the line, then people will step in and make the market act more ethically, and you know governments can sort of uh, sit to one side. So when, when you think about ethical investing and maybe the limits of ethical investing. Where, where do you think, you know, ethical, where, where, what do you think are the limits of ethical funds like Future Super and where, where do you really see a need for government to step in and play a bigger role in some of these big issues that uh, you guys are trying to drive change in? Yeah, I think um, it, it's a great question and I guess why would somebody join a fund like Future Super? One is uh, they're trying to protect their savings, for instance, from stranded asset risk of fossil fuels. They think there's uh, money to be made from investing in more ethical companies. But also they're sending this really strong signal as well, which is by moving their money to, to a fund like Future Super, but also moving their energy providers and their banking and other things as well. They're sending this strong signal that says, I care so much about climate change. I despise the business practices of fossil fuel companies so much that I'm willing to change who my financial providers are by doing so, I'm going to cut off some of the access those industries have to uh, expand to expansion, to, to getting access to capital. But I'm also helping to erode the social license of those industries to operate. And, you know, one of those things, you know, restricting access to capital makes it really hard for those companies to continue to operate. That's a really direct impact. But eroding the social license of an industry helps governments step in and uh, put in rules and regulations that help erode that industry as well. And we've seen that with the uh, uh, tobacco. Uh, so what we've seen is in Australia, you know, we've had divestment movements around tobacco for years. You know, so we started seeing regulations that restricted uh, advertising, and now we see plain packaging laws. And and you know, uh, cigarette companies are not doing as well in Australia and have to make profits elsewhere. But you know, it's all a result of, or well, it's partly a result of the social license being eroded as a result of people like ethical investors uh, sort of stepping in and taking action. And then before we uh, go into our final three questions, you know, we've been speaking a lot about the the positives of ethical investing tonight and, and the reasons for putting money in, into it. But on the other side of that, are there any arguments, compelling arguments that you've come up against for, I guess, not ethically investing or, or what are some of the reasons that people decide against uh, ethical investing? Um, yeah, so um, it's interesting. <laughs> it's an interesting question. Don't worry. It stumps a lot of the guests we get. <laughs> uh, I'll give two different answers. One is if I'm an institutional investor, well, if I'm speaking to institutional investors, the most common argument I guess get against ethical investing is around tracking error is that, you know, so if you're big institutional investors just want to look exactly like the regular share market indices and don't like to vary much from it. But if you're an ethical investor and you're choosing to exclude the fossil fuel industry, for example, well, you're going to see some tracking error. But what we also know is that tracking error is positive. Fossil fuel companies are detracting from returns. That tracking error is actually showing you how much extra you're making for your investors. But 
that's not the way institutional investors tend to think. They tend to be very concerned about tracking error, and that's their biggest argument against it. For a retail investor, the most common argument I hear is that everybody's ethics are different, but that's not a really valid argument against ethical investing. You just need to work a bit harder to try and find a fund that match, uh, invests in a way that matches your ethics. So that's just a process of sitting down and working out what's important to you. You know, if you're a, a deep green investor or a light green investor or whatever it is, just work out what's uh, important to you and find a fund that matches it. I don't think it's very valid to say that everybody's ethics are different, therefore I won't consider ethics at all in how I invest money. Do you do you both uh, consider ethics when you put together your own portfolios? So so I personally do. Like I, I don't hold any tobacco companies or uh, actually I don't hold any mining companies either, but I think my, my ethical standards may be a little bit different. Like I probably wouldn't, I probably wouldn't be too concerned about, you know, an alcohol company. I don't know, Bryce, do you? Yeah, I, I don't take a as strict approach as, as someone uh, who may be, you know, very interested in investing in, in f- future super. Um, but the same, I, I don't have mining or um, tobacco or anything like that. And I, I, I certainly consider the the ramifications of investing in those sorts of companies but like you and i don't take it as probably seriously as i should i don't know if that's the right word but um yeah i think you know i'm definitely i'm in facebook and woolworths and and those sorts of companies so yeah it's an interesting question something that certainly i'm thinking about yeah. i mean definitely obviously um i mean as, as uh, you've heard i mean future super is a very committed to being the best at ethical investing having very broad screens mm. and being uh you know covering every ethical issue you could possibly imagine but equally there's lots of ethical funds out there who concentrate on one or two different things like you've just mentioned and so you know even if future super isn't the right one for you i'm sure your ethics match uh, you know some ethical fund that's out there yeah so adam just picking up on bryce's question when we were preparing for this interview, one argument against ethical investing uh, that I came across that I was interested to get your two cents on was the argument that investors should invest to make money and then spend ethically because the decision about where they spend their money has more of an impact than uh, where they invest their money. So I'm interested to um, hear your thoughts on that. Uh yeah, so, so that is an argument I hear every now and then, and it just doesn't stack up to me. Like the amount of money people have, particularly in their superannuation funds, like this is your biggest asset, and where it's invested just does make a, a huge difference. And if I use just one measure, so for instance, Future Super in its portfolios actually abate more carbon through its investment in uh, solar and wind and other renewable energy than the carbon that's embedded in some of our listed stocks that we're uh, invested in. So overall, we can invest in future super and have a positive climate impact. We've been trying to work out what term to use, whether it's carbon negative or carbon positive, but either way, it's, 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 it, you know, it's abating more carbon than it's producing. That makes far more impact than anything else you can do in your life to reduce your carbon footprint. It makes a lot more difference than switching to a completely plant-based diet or driving a hybrid or electric car or, you know, doing things like riding your bike to work. So it's quite easy for me to show how an investment in Future Super, for example, uh, makes a bigger difference than other individual purchasing decisions you could make. It doesn't mean you shouldn't make uh, ethical purchasing decisions, but but I think, you know, you're, you're not offsetting the damage you could be doing for your investments uh, by doing so. Yeah, I think, I think the other part of it is you, you can do both. Like you can invest ethically and uh, spend ethically. 
And, you know, the, the sort of implication behind that argument is that you'll you'll make more from your investments if you invest unethically and then that incremental spend is, you know, where you make your ethical difference. But, you know, as, as you've sort of touched on before, ethical funds have just performed really well in the last market cycle. So, uh, yeah, I um, it was a common argument, argument we came across, but I'm not sure um, in this market how much it holds. Yeah, yeah, it, it's kind of based off that argument that um, by reducing your universe, your investment universe, that you're reducing your ability to, you know, access investments that might produce a superior return. But I think what I've seen is you're reducing your universe and what you're uh, leaving out of your ethical universe is stuff that's kind of producing a garbage return anyway. So you're better off financially by not investing uh, in sort of dying industries. Yeah, actually, sorry, you, you've just triggered another question. We were going to get to our final three, but before we do, Bryce and I have sometimes spoken about waste companies. You know, there's a few big ones in Australia. Where where do they sit on the uh, ethical un- or unethical spectrum? So on the uh, generally on the ethical side, um, because uh, waste management, reuse of materials, recycling is considered to be uh, considered to be a positive. But obviously uh, the Australian waste management industry has a number of issues uh, in the last few years, particularly around uh, some of their standards and what they're actually doing with the stuff that we think should be getting recycled. So, you know, future super investing companies like um, Sims Metal Management, for example, which, uh, you know, does a lot of recycling of, of materials and steel and things like that, but we are also invested in some of those bigger waste management companies uh, like Bingo, uh, for example. Uh, and in doing so, we've had to look to see, you know, what exposure to some of those uh, controversies that were revealed around waste management practices in Australia as a result. And on balance, we were comfortable with their uh, involvement um, in it. But but it's, um, obviously, we're also open to getting new information um, if you think that we uh, <laughs> should think differently about that one. <laughs> I just think it's a it's a fascinating industry at the moment because you're right, you know, the sort of the China the change in Chinese policy has exposed a lot of practices and yet they're so fundamental to solving our, you know, our waste problems. So yeah, anyway, interesting one. Before before I think of any other industries that I wanna ask you about, we'll um, we'll get on to the final three. So <laughs> Adam, thanks. Um, thanks for taking the time and indulging us today. I think it's been a really interesting conversation. And as Bryce opened the interview with, um, a lot of listeners have asked about ethical investing, and it's something that both Bryce and I are interested in. So we appreciate you, you know, helping us expand our knowledge. The first question of the final three that we ask every guest: uh, Do you have any must-read books, either investing or otherwise? Uh, Yeah, so one I've read uh, just recently, and I know it's getting passed around our office at the moment, is a book called Winner Takes All by Anand Jirudharadas, which is, uh, I don't know if you've heard about this book. No, I haven't. But it's essentially, it's a critique of uh, sort of impact investing and uh, philanthropy. Really fascinating for people in my industry to read about it and sort of has this real focus on like, you know, are are people really um, making the impacts they want, you know? Because to make a big change on issues like climate change and inequality requires system change, but a lot of impact investors and philanthropists are sort of 
you know, interested in making incremental change and not making the system change because they've been the beneficiaries of our uh, existing systems. So it's been a really interesting one to read. And I know it's um, upset a few people in uh, sort of the ethical investing and impact investment world, but that's, I think, what makes it a particularly interesting one to read at the moment. Yeah, we'll throw that up um, on our website and in the show notes. Adam, what are, number two, what are some of the hotspots or your go-to source for uh, investing information? Uh, yeah, so I don't really have like a publication or anything I tend to go to, but what I do love doing is just chatting to heaps of different uh, fund managers uh, and really getting down into the detail about how they manage their portfolios and what they're thinking about. So, you know, I'm, I'm an extroverted person. I love to get out to events and go into people's offices and really dig down into the detail about how they're doing uh, their jobs. It's probably not that helpful uh, a tip <laughs> to, to your listeners who might not have access to, to as many fund managers. Um, just follow you <laughs> <Yeah>. around. <laughs> and then, Adam, last last question. If you think back to your early investing days, um, what advice would you tell your younger self? Uh, to my early investing? I don't know. Like, what do people normally say to this one? <laughs> I, uh, almost, <laughs> I couldn't think of any piece of advice. <laughs> a lot of a lot of people go with the, like never sell anything and uh, have invested more when they're young. There seems to be a real um, a real trend about regretting not taking advantage of the powers of compounding. Mm. I think the last last interview did um, was uh, the advice was don't buy, don't take out a personal loan to buy a shitty car. So <laughs> it can be anything. <laughs> it could be. That's pretty good. I mean, I feel pretty happy with the decisions I made when I was young. You know, like I, I stayed debt-free pretty well, which uh, which I think was a good decision to make. But also like I was saving money to spend on, you know, going on holidays and things like that, you know, had a, had a great Kentucky trip around Europe and stuff like that. So, you know, I feel like I was, you know, I made the right decisions to have, uh, a, you know, a good outcome <laughs> on those things. Yeah. I, think, I think my advice would be, uh, you're right, don't buy stuff. <laughs> no regrets <laughs> no 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 regrets yeah well you're the you're the first guest to recommend uh a european continue to uh, <laughs> true <laughs> <laughs> well adam thank you so much for for joining us tonight as uh, alex said it, it was a, a great conversation and one that i know will appeal to a lot of our our listeners out there and we've really enjoyed going into some detail in, in this space that we haven't really gone to before on the show. So we've certainly expanded our, our knowledge in, in the area and there's probably a thousand other questions that we could ask, but maybe we'll check in with you a bit further on down the track to see how Future Super is going and, and, and I'm sure the industry is going to be changing quite quickly over, over the next few years. So again, thank you for your time and uh, we look forward to uh, catching up at another point in time. Great. Thanks for having me on. Equity mates and the people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. This is general advice only. Please speak to a financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your individual situation. Equity mates. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is useful. Equity. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.